you'll notice I didn't even come up with anything. Usually come up with my iPad and my Bible or something like that, but thank you, Rach. <laughs> um, but uh, this morning we made a, well, actually as of last night, we made, I made kind of an audible and uh, and it's not me pulling an audible, it's actually the Lord pulling an audible and me listening. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, yesterday after we had, uh, a, you know, we had a family come over for lunch after soccer and, and had a great time of visiting with them. And then uh, Fred had already kind of arranged that he also had some friends in town, friends that he met or the, the friendship began a long time ago and has been more recently resurrected and uh, kind of these, this reacquaintance. And he's like, hey, I'd love for you to meet them. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, this would be so great. Um, and so they came to our house yesterday afternoon, Celeste, Celestine, and his wife, Bernadette. And uh, they're from Rwanda originally. They live in Dallas, kind of Fort Worth area right now, I'm guessing, somewhere like that. But, uh, but from Rwanda, go back and forth. Uh, and they have an incredible message. And um, just in our short conversation, uh, Again, it just, I think the Lord just used you just sharing your life, how you came to Christ, the, the, the ministry that he really rolled out for you, and um, I don't have the book with me right now, but uh, through, you, you're all aware, or most of you are aware of the genocide in Rwanda. Uh, I don't need to go into detail about that. Perhaps you will give some explanation to that, but um, there uh, was a massive move after that as far as reconciliation and forgiveness. And how in the world do you do that when the person you're called to forgive is the person that killed your family in front of you? How do you do that? This is where the gospel is probably most profound and on display for us. And as Celestine was sharing, uh, I myself was convicted and I was chewing on it, and my wife and I were debriefing after our brief conversation and, and just felt the Lord saying, he's supposed to preach today. And so, and, and I went back and forth like, but I already have a sermon ready, Lord. <laughs> and it says, but this is who I brought for this weekend. You can preach that next weekend. And so, uh, so we have an opportunity this morning, church family, to uh, hear from a dear brother in Christ and even as I shared before, we have a bond with Celestine and his wife, Bernadette, because guess what? They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as, we've, as, as John even tells us, or we learn from the letter of 1 John, the bond that we share in Christ is stronger and e- more eternal than the bond that even we have with family members that do not know Christ. And so we are proud and honored that you are here with us this morning, brothers and sisters. Very much proud. And Fred, if you don't know, he's going to be sharing with us next week. Uh, he just came back from Malawi, and he, his his life is taking off again. Uh, his ministry is taking off again. He will. I'll leave, let him share all that. But uh, he went from Lord, I'm here. Am I? Send me. Right. We just sang about that. To now, he's going, Lord, how do I do all this that you've given me to do? And, uh, but I won't put words in your mouth and I won't steal your thunder. That'll be for next week. But this morning, we have the unique honor and privilege to hear from our brother, Celestine. And Celestine, why don't you come on up here right now? And the, the, what, Bernadette, can you stand up too, actually? You just come on up here. We'll, just, we'll get a visual here. 
Fred, you get the platform next week, so we'll let you come on up next week and stuff. <laughs> and Sh- they're staying at Cheryl's house. Cheryl, thank you so much for being, always being an incredible host to so many people that come and go, and you, you meet lots of people all the time, so... Your house has become a hub of sorts. But we are so grateful to have you here, and we're grateful to hear from God through you. Thank you. And we're grateful for the message that he has laid on your heart to deliver us for us today. So I just want to pray for us again that we would open our hearts willingly and ready to respond to whatever he calls us to. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We just saying that we love you and we acknowledge the fact we can only say that because you first loved us and you pursued us and you saved us. So, Father, we, this is why we gather. We gather to worship you for how great you are and what great things you have done for us. But we also know we have this thing called the flesh, the, the, the carnal nature. And although that has been defeated, on the other hand, we continue to battle the side of eternity. Mm. And it pokes its ugly head up in so many different ways, especially Mm. in the area of unforgiveness. And so, Father, right now, we just pray that you give us open hearts, Mm. listening ears, and we ask that you give us a willingness to follow through. Whatever you ask us to do, May our only response is, we will do that. Glorify yourself even now for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning, church. I'm speechless, and I hope I will find the speech again. Uh, Because uh, what uh, Pastor... Aaron has done is not usual, especially for American preachers. And so I told him after he called me last night and uh, uh, asked if I would share with you, I said, you, you are either an African or insane. <laughs> and maybe both, who knows. <laughs> but I'm really humbled, uh, humbled to stand before you and uh, before God uh, to um, express my gratitude. Even as we sang this last song, I could not help. I was in tears uh, because I remembered. So it's about 46 years ago when Fred um, happened to be in my neighborhood. Uh, together with uh, the man I call my spiritual father, Kyle, uh, when they had started this school, uh, this high school, this uh, technical school, where for the first time I had the gospel, and clearly the gospel, though few, about two years before I met them, the same man, Kyle, had been in my village, and uh, uh, when he showed up, we thought he was one of the animals from the bush. Or one of the animals, or one of the ancestors from the graves, because at the age of um, 11 years old, um, in fact, when I saw the white man for the first time, uh, I was about 13, and, uh, but we had heard about uh, two years before then, we had heard that there was a creature that is going around, and we should be careful what we do what we say to that creature. 
Then uh, at the age of 13, he was in my village and saw literally uh, the first time I saw a white man, I was about 13 years old. In my village in the, north, in the western part of Rwanda, I never seen a white man. We live in the bush. Uh, I mean, I'm not a bushman, but we lived without electricity. We didn't see white people. We're not in the city. So when he showed up, we were told we should not listen to him because his God is different from our God. But as boys are curious, we would go to see him because we didn't know if he was a human being because his color was different. So we rub our finger and <laughs> see if the white stuff would come off. <laughs> and uh, I mean, was he an animal from the bush or was he one of the ancestors from the graves? But it's through him that uh, three years later, I gave my life to Christ. So even as I stand here before you, my true life began when uh, Fred was one of the teachers who was teaching agronomist, uh, uh, agriculture, and I was his student, um, age of uh, 18, 19. When he left, I was turning 20, and then for three years later, we just got together again. I will not have life today, literally, both physical and spiritual, if... Kyle did not say, here I am, send me. So if you sing that song, be serious, because tomorrow the Lord may send you to the bush <laughs> or to the city. I will not be where I am if men and women like Fred and his wife Becky did not come to invest in these skinny, ugly boys in Rwanda. So, really, I have nothing to give to you rather than what I have been given. I just also shed tears because I remembered. I remembered. Kyle died in Rwanda. I had to go to bury him because he had become my father. When my own father and mother had disowned me because I became a believer. I'm here, yet the man who brought Christ to me is buried back in my home country. But it is joy because while he's buried over there, I'm here. You see the, the misery of God. When God say, when you say, send me, you never know what will happen. It's not, not only, only me. There are many boys in Rwanda. There are many pastors in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Congo, where, by God's grace, we have been serving, who have come to Christ, who are preaching the gospel of Christ, who are preaching salvation, who are preaching forgiveness and reconciliation because Kyle, because uh, uh, Fred and Becky and, uh, and Bill Pierce came and invested their lives in this small group of ugly boys who had been told they are good for nothing, they amount to nothing. But by God's grace, this man, this young man, these ugly boys who have become fat Baptist preachers are changing their nations. So this morning, what I want to share with you is really something that is not unique. It's something that we as Christians, we need to think through because God is doing something, whether it was those years back or today. 
whether it was in the bushes of Rwanda or in the beautiful mountains of Washington. Benadette and I had a wonderful time this weekend. I mean, I don't know how to say we had fasting, fasting. So the first time we ate elk last night. I mean, I don't... Yesterday at Cheryl's place, I actually, for the first time, I ate an apple that I harvested myself. <laughs> but as I was enjoying, then I remembered I am harvesting where I did not sow. But I thank God for Cheryl. So beautiful things happened. But this morning, let me come back to the scripture. I want to share with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because this is where my calling after the genocide, most of you heard about the genocide in Rwanda, uh, things changed from pastoral uh, to pastor, pastor to trained pastors, I began to, to rethink through what does it mean to be a Christian. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, it is a verse that we are all familiar with. It is a passage that we uh, can say, um, uh, we know, but uh, maybe I don't know how many of us really think through this passage. You see, Paul is writing to Corinthians in his second letter, and the Corinthians just were like us. They were people who had confessed to follow Christ but their carnal mind, their uh, flesh, they were involved in things that did not make sense for a believer. And so with this second letter, Paul is trying to help them understand how they should live after they have been transformed. Because they were still living as if nothing has happened. And so he's trying to help them understand the transformation that takes place when one confesses Christ as his Savior. But also he's trying to help them understand that you move your identity from who you say you were before Christ to a new identity, and then you begin to live out that new identity. And for me, this is where the church in Rwanda, maybe the church in Burundi, maybe the church in Africa, we have failed. Because we don't understand what happens when we are new creation. So Paul begins by saying, when anyone in the cross... Now, English is my sixth language. I did speak English until recently. Maybe recently is uh, maybe too recent, but... The first language, I mean, the first English I started to speak was when Becky actually was teaching us when I was 18 years old. But really speaking English is when I went to Kenya in uh, Bible school because Kyle, the missionary, wrote him to Christ when he died and he had his books and I could not read the English. So I said, I need to go to Kenya to study English so I can use the Bible commentary, the dictionaries. And so in 1988, that's when I went to really study English. But when I think about these words, every word means something. Now, Paul begins by saying, if anyone, so what's the meaning of anyone? Anybody. Anyone means anyone. It means anyone, any human being, no matter where you were born, no matter the color of your skin, no matter whether you were born in the city or in the village, in the bush like me, born without shoes or born with shoes like American kids. 
Anyone means anyone. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, what happens to anyone in Christ? Paul says is a new creation. You see, Paul begins by establishing the superiority of the identity in Christ. So when you and I become believers, our identity changes from who you were before to Christian identity. So anyone in Christ, he she is a new creation. Because the old has gone, behold, the new has come. So it means there's a transformation that takes place when we are in Christ. And so whether you are born in this city, white, black, yellow, by, the, by then, uh, people say they are white, but uh, I don't know. I have never seen a white man, actually. Have you seen a white man? What is this? It's white. Some of you are pink or I don't know. <laughs> and so he says, whether you are pink or chocolate, I'm not black, I'm chocolate. <laughs> whether you are born short or tall, whether you are born whatever, wherever you are born, whatever culture, whatever condition, socioeconomic, in Christ, you become a new creation. So your identity has changed. Whether you are born Hutu or Tutsi, in Christ, you belong to the tribe of Christ. And so the problem that we have today, in fact, the problem we had in Rwanda, maybe you don't have this problem, the reason why we had the genocide in 1994 in a country where most of the missionaries had been happy because they turned the country into Christianity, the problem we Christians the church especially, including me as a pastor, we confuse conversion and discipleship. See, the church all over the world, even maybe today here, we have been busy or we are busy making converts rather than making disciples. That's what happened in Rwanda. People say they, they were Christians, but when they the rubber hit the road. When their tribes called them, when their political leaders called them to say, this Hutu and this Atutsi, you remember you are Hutu first, remember you are Tutsi first, people believed the nonsense and then they acted as Hutus and Tutsis. That's why in 1994, literally, in my own country, we had Christians killing Christians. We had Hutus killing Hutu Christians, killing Tutsi Christians, Tutsi Christians killing Hutu Christians because they did not understand that their identity in Christ supersedes their tribal identity. And after I have come, we have come to the U.S. for our studies, we have realized that in America, even though you don't have uh, Hutus and Tutsis, but we have something similar. Democrats and Republicans. Literally, I have been in my Sunday school class in Dallas, I will not tell you the church, where we were discussing, and the men were, especially the men, they were discussing this politics. I told the men, men, shut up. <laughs> Do you understand what you are doing today? You are behaving like my people. The next time, you may bring machetes in the church. Because they were thinking, 
They were arguing. They were discussing things like Democrats and Republicans. These were in the same Sunday school class in the same church in Dallas. I told them, you are behaving like Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. And so we began to talk about, yes, uh, these issues we have to confront, but we need first to discuss them from our Christian identity. Not from Democrat, not from Republican, because in Christ, there's no Democrat, there's no Republican, there's no Hutu, there's no Tutsi. And so what Paul is saying, the first thing that happened to us when we are in Christ, we have a new identity. And Paul says, but how does that happen? You see, Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You see, when we talk about God and the reconciliation and the Christ, there is a process going on. We sometimes believe, many times we believe that, oh, we can't reconcile, or we can only reconcile when we have asked people to pay. Now, that's the justice. But listen to what Paul says. So he says, his Paul is telling us, if we are true Christians, we need to remember first, our identity in Christ must supersede our tribal or any other identity, our racial identity. We are Christians. We are not Hutu or Tutsi or Democrats and Republicans. We are Christians first. And then if this identity is clear, then other things, we discuss them based on our, on our identity. We murdered each other's family in Rwanda because even Christians thought they were Hutu first, they were Tutsi first, then they were Christian second. And so we made more converts in Rwanda. We did not make disciples. So there was no transformation. There was no loyalty to Christ because loyalty was still at our tribe. I don't know where is your loyalty today. Do you act... Do you do things like a white or a black, a Democrat, a Republican, male or female, or do you think, or do you act, or do you uh, reflect from the Christian perspective? First as a Christian, and then you say, as a Christian, this is the way I see these things. But how did this new creation happen? You see, Paul is saying, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. There are two words that I want us to think through. For us to be reconciled to God, for us to even have the privilege of being called the children of God, two things happened. On the cross, there are two things that are happening at the same time. On one hand, God is stopping counting men's sin against them. Now, ladies, when you, count, you, when you stop counting the sins of your husband, what are you doing? That's forgiveness, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to ask you now. I am a Baptist preacher. When I ask, I'm asking an answer. You see, at the cross, these things are happening. The Bible says at the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. How could that happen? Reconciliation at the cross happened exactly when God stopped counting the sins of men against them. So there is no 
reconciliation without forgiveness. Are we together here? But if there is forgiveness, there must be what? Reconciliation. The two are not the same, but the two, they go together. After three years after the major genocide, I was then in Dallas with my family working on my PhD. I got a letter, a fax, that my family and 70 people in my village were murdered. That my father, in fact, when I got the facts, I was told seven members of my family were murdered. Thank God my mother and my niece survived because my mother was under the dead bodies between four and five hours. And when she woke up, she picked this baby two years old, nursing a dead mother. She ran the bush, didn't know this was her granddaughter for four days. And the night I read about the killing, this was three years after I had started the ministry training, helping pastors to deal with the anger and the bitterness. When the pastors were asking me, I know somebody who killed my wife and four children, can I kill them and then forgive them after? I mean, that's what we do. Can I revenge and then forgive them? I had begun to help them understand what it means to be forgiven by God and what it means for us to be agents of forgiveness. But when I read about these facts, I began to ask God, where were you, God, when this happened? The first casualty in this calamity is God. Where is God? The second question I was asking, who did it? I wanted God to tell me who did so that I can revenge. Of course, I was not going to kill them. But revenge has different forms. Revenge can be, I will not greet them. Revenge, I will not sit on the same pew. Revenge will be, if they are sitting there, I will sit there. And in America, revenge is, I will move out. I will not attend the same church with them. I will not go to the same restaurant. Or, to make the worst things, to make things worse, I will divorce him or her. Even among Christians. And so I said, God, who did it? Two things I learned that night. God told me, son, I was there present just like I was at the cross when my son was hung for your sins. I was there. Just like my son said, Father, Father, why have you forgotten me? I was there at the cross. So don't ask where I was. I was there. The second thing that the Lord told me, he reminded me the prayer I had made when I became a Christian. In fact, when I became a pastor, went back to my village, as I told you, when I became a Christian, my family disowned me because they told they would die. You see, I was born when my mother had no children for nine years, and when I was born, she taught I was gifts from the ancestors. She dedicated me to be a priest, so I was born a priest. So at the age of seven, I knew how to slaughter goat, slaughter chicken, and shed the blood, and shed the blood, and then build this altar, and then offer the blood of animals so that the ancestors, the spirit of the dead, can live, can let us live. Because that's where, how many people believe. But when I gave my life to Christ, my parents believed that their ancestors, the spirit of the dead, would kill everyone. After me, two brothers and one sister were born, it was my responsibility to offer sacrifices for them so they can live. But when I gave my life to Christ, they said, we will all die. From now on, never come back home. That's when 
life became difficult, but that's another time I can share another time the story of how Kyle and, and uh, Bill Pierce and another lady from Cleveland, Ohio, worked sending six, seven dollars every month for six years for the skinny, ugly boy to go to school. That's how I was able to finish high school and went to Bible school and become a preacher. But my parents had said, never come back home. So when I went back to my village in 1983, I said, Lord, if nobody else is saved, save my family. So even as I went back to my village, I began to say, how will I preach the gospel to my family? So I had led my mom to Christ. I had led my father to Christ. I led my brother to Christ. So when I cried, where were you? God said, remember, you asked that I will save your family. I saved them. They died where they are at home. You finish the journey well because they finished well. Then the Lord told me, Celestine, don't ask who they were because you want to revenge. You want not to love them. You want not to, uh, you want maybe to hate them. You need to forgive them before you know who they are. I struggled that night. I said, Lord, I can't forgive them. How can you forgive people who could seven members of your family and seven people in your village who were your friends, who were members of my church. But then I had baptized them. We had led them to Christ. We had married them. How do you forgive people who did such terrible things? The Lord said to me that night, son, it is the forgiver who pays for forgiveness. While you were yet sinner, my son died for you. I paid for your forgiveness. You sinned against me. You rebelled against me. The whole humanity rebelled against me, and I, God, paid for the forgiveness of the whole world. So the Lord said, I want you to forgive them before you know who they are. One year later, I found myself face to face with the family of those who murdered my family, telling them, I have forgiven you. They could not, some of them could not believe some of them went to jail. My wife and I began to take their own children, the children of those who led the killers, the children of those who killed, the, the grandsons of those who murdered my friends. We began to take them as our own children. We sent them to school. Some have finished high school. Some are finishing university. But we said forgiveness means we do another step. You see, God, what God does for us is he's not only forgiving us and say, I forgive you, but I don't want to relate with you. That's how American forgiveness is. Not actually American. It's that human. I forgive you, but I don't want to relate with you. If God had forgiven us on the cross and say no reconciliation, we would say, God, it doesn't matter. I don't need that forgiveness. If we were forgiven, God said, I forgive you, but I don't want to relate with you. I forgive you, but I don't want to reconcile with you. My brother and my, my sisters will still be hopeless today. And so he stopped counting men's sin against them. That's what forgiveness is. You see, many people are killing each other, not only in Rwanda. Maybe there's no genocide in America. We don't kill machetes, but I have been around enough. We kill with our own words. The words we use. 
And the killing in Rwanda began before, years before the physical killing. Because the killing began when the Hutus and Tutsis began to demonize and dehumanize each other. So by the time the machetes were doing the job, they were not killing human beings. The Hutus were killing Tutsis because Tutsis were cockroaches. They had, they had turned human beings into cockroaches. You see, when we begin to see other people like less human, we begin to see other people, they are not completely human. We begin to demonize them, to dehumanize them. We give ourselves the permission to oppress them because we are not pressing human beings. So my brother, my sisters, I want to tell you, God reconciled the world to himself because he was able to stop counting people's sin against, he stopped counting your sin against you. So each one of us, the Bible says, each one of us had rebelled. All human beings, everybody. And as if I could count, it is like God, each one of us had an account. Whenever you sinned, the number was, was increasing on the uh, board. So God like, had a board. Is God. He had a board where my friend James, Celestine, Fred, and even the pastor. The pastor is holy. Actually, Abby is the holiest person. <laughs> but even the holiest, in fact, Jonathan, Jonathan, their son, yesterday, when I got there, Jonathan insisted that I have something, and he even chose for me a cocoa with a marshmallow in my coffee. I never had cocoa with marshmallow. <laughs> so I would say Jonathan is, uh, is the saint one. But even Jonathan, the little one, before God, he had an account. Every time you sin, it, the number was increased. Some of you are like me, sinners. So the, 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 the needle, or the, 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 the clock. So imagine the clock. The clock, each one time you sin, the clock ticked. Some of you, your clock was going, ta, ta, ta. Some of us, because we were big sinners, the clock was going, ta, 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 ta. Some of you, it was like a fan. <laughs> I mean, each one of us had an account. Because every time we sinned without Christ, we were, our account was being increased. But at the cross, what happened? The Bible says at the cross, every clock stopped. God stopped counting many sins against them. It means whether you have two million or three million billions of sin, everyone, the clock Stopped at the cross. But the Bible tells us in verse 21 in chapter 5, the Bible tells us the clock did not only stop, but the needle, or whatever you call it, the hand, you call the hand, we call the needle, that's the French translation. The needle or the hand went back erasing every sin you committed. Hallelujah. You know, this is when the Baptists become Pentecostal. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Amen. You see, the handle did not stand there so that God will look at Fred. Fred, don't joke. I see three million sins you had committed. No. The Bible says he, God, he made the one who had no sin to be sin for us so that you and I become the righteousness of God. 
So the needle went back and erased all our sins we had committed. And so when God sees us, he sees Celestia as holy. That's why Paul, we write even the Corinthians who were sinners, to the saints. They were saints not because they had not committed sin. They were saints because the righteousness of God had been imputed on them. So in our account of sin, God removed the sin because the blood, God filled our account with God's righteousness. That's why the Bible says we were not only justified, we were also sanctified. Hallelujah. And so before God, my sins are not counted. It is the pure righteousness of God. So my brother and my sisters, what am I saying? What the Bible is telling us is that when we are Christians, we have the model. The model of forgiveness, the model of living together, the model of living in the community is when we are able not only to forgive one another. So what forgiveness is? People ask me, what's forgiveness? Forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. That's a simple definition. Forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. When we begin to say, I'm right, that's what causes disharmony and, 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 and fight and between husband and wife, between Christians and Democrats, Republicans, Putin, is when everybody's right, then we take the machete to kill each other. Then at the end, we are all dead bodies. Forgiveness is that ability to give up that right to be right so that you can forge a new relationship. Forgiveness is giving up the anger, the rage, the bitterness so that you may replace them with empathy and compassion. That's what Paul tells Christians. So how do we live from now? So Paul says, then Paul would encourage Colossians and Philippians and, uh, and, and uh, uh, Ephesians. In fact, even First Peter would encourage Christians how they should live. In fact, Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to the flesh. I know that pastor recently taught what the major, what the major issue in this world the major issue in this world is sin and self. And so Paul is telling, put aside the self. Put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. That's Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. But he's not only saying put off, he's telling them put on. You see, when he's telling them to put on in verse 12, he says, close yourself with compassion with kindness, with humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against each other, forgive as God, as the Lord has forgiven him. You see, Paul in both Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, he's listing things that destroys our relationships. When you read that list of things we have to put off, those are things, habits that destroys relationships among people. And he's saying because you have been chosen, because you are a man of God, because you are a new creation, therefore the old has gone, put off the old, get rid of the old. But then he says the new has come, it is not just putting off and staying naked, he's saying no, close yourself. This is how you should live in the community so that your community may be in harmony. Paul tells us as Christians, therefore we are the peacemakers. 
He says, God, after he has been saved us, after he has rest, uh, restored us, after he has forgiven us, he Paul says, he has given us the message and the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. And he says, we are therefore. They're therefore, because of those things that have happened, because we are new creation, because we have been transformed, because we have been forgiven, because we have been uh, reconciled with God, we can't help it, but now we are the agents of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why Paul will say then, as God in Christ forgave you, that's in Ephesians chapter 4, forgive one another. So we have the model. Get rid of this divisive nature of things. Get rid of these things that corrupt the life together in the community. And finally, when he's, Jesus is teaching his disciples, he says, uh, uh, the prayer of disciples says, give us this day our daily bread. What's the next in the prayer? I want to hear you. Forgive us our trespasses. It means, why do you know, uh, have you thought about why food and forgiveness are together in this prayer? Have you thought about it? In fact, at the end of the prayer, Jesus is making a comment not on God the Father, not our Father in heaven, not hallowed, not the holiness of God. He's coming back, he makes a comment. This is how my Father will treat you if you don't forgive one another. So in the prayer for the disciples, Jesus is teaching us, teaching the disciples and us this morning, just like you cannot survive physically without daily bread. Relationally, we cannot survive without what? Forgiveness. Our community together, our life together in this community, even the people outside the church, we can't live. Let me tell you, if we are going to live a life in harmony, Christians, we need to begin to practice these two virtues. Forgive each other. And forgiveness is a daily practice. When you forgive, it is done. But when you forgive, you are not reconciled. I have heard many people say, I don't want to forgive because that means I am reconciled. I want to tell you, there's a big difference between the two. You can forgive without reconciling. However, God's intention is for us to forgive and then begin the process of reconciliation. Why are the two different? Forgiveness is unconditional. When I decide to forgive the people who murdered my father, my brother, his wife, and kids, and my daughter's sister, I made the decision when I was 9,000 miles away from them. But I had to go to tell them that I forgave them. And when I forgave them, they could accept the forgiveness or refuse it, but it is a gift. It's unconditional. You see, when you forgive, you are giving a gift. You cannot take it away. Oh, I had forgiven, and now I'm taking the forgiveness away. You can't. The person you forgive can accept the gift or leave it there. But forgiveness is unconditional. You can decide it. You can forgive the people who are dead. Because I have met people, I have talked to people who are still angry against their fathers who are dead. So who's hurting? Is the dead or the living? The living. Some of us are hurting because we have failed to forgive the people who are dead. So you can forgive even the people who are dead. You can forgive the people who are alive without them knowing. They don't have to know. It would be good to let them know. But reconciliation 
is not unconditional. For a conciliation to take place, you have to work on it, both of you. Because the reconciliation is rebuilding the trust again. Reconciliation is both the parties to begin to work together. That's how then later on, I began to work with not only the families, but I began to work with how will we reconcile because the people we forgave did not believe they are forgiven. And so how do you tell them, how do you help them they are, they are forgiven? That's when you began to take their children to school to pay the fees for those kids whose fathers murdered my family. We began to do good to them. Just like God has mercy, he has forgiven you. Every day you go to him, he forgives you, he loves you, he cares for you. And then we began to work on reconciliation. For reconciliation, we began to, be, to bring Hutu pastors and the Tutsi pastors to talk together about the evil committed against each other. You see, forgiveness is unconditional. Reconciliation is conditional. You have to begin to acknowledge what you have done. You have to own your part. The Hutus have to own the 99% of their cruelty in the Tutsis. But Tutsis are not holy 100%. The Tutsis have to own the 1% for the whole mess. So in the conflict, in the separation, in the tribal in America, the Democrats and Republicans, none of them, none of you is 100% holy. We have caused trouble all over. Maybe you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your son. Don't say he, she did, but own your 1%. Acknowledge it. Confess it. That's what reconciliation is. We begin to work to build trust. And then sometimes it may take a week, a month, two years, but it doesn't matter how long it takes. The Bible tells us we need, we Christians, we need to make our efforts. Romans 12, 18 say, as far as it depends upon you, live in peace with who? With everybody, including the Hutus and Tutsis. Including the Democrats and Republicans. Live in peace with everybody. As long as it depends, it means you and I, we have the obligation. Not only to forgive the people, but to begin to build the, the, the process. How can we trust? Jesus tells the disciples, if you stand praying, and there, I mean, thank you, pastor, this morning, as you asked us, what is our offering? What are we bringing as sacrifice this morning? You see, that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, 23, 24. He says, when you bring your gift, when you bring your offering at the altar, there you remember that you have something against your brother, or your brother has something against you. Leave the offering. He's saying, I don't care about your offering. I don't even care about your worship. I don't care about your, uh, your songs and your anything. As long as you have brokenness, I don't care about it. Go, be reconciled, and come and offer. You see, for Jesus, my brother, my sisters, Jesus cares more about our reconciliation and forgiveness than our worship. Maybe next Sunday, we don't need to come to, to worship. No, that's the decision of the elders. <laughs> but maybe the elders need to say, if you have brokenness, you are not reconciled, brother. Today there's no worship. You go be reconciled and come back. You see, Jesus is telling us when there's brokenness, when there's unforgiveness, when there's rage and anger and bitterness against each other, we should not come to worship him. He doesn't like our worship. And he told the Old Testament people that he's nauseated. 
In fact, he says, God, you, do know, you know that God can vomit? I mean, he said, I want to vomit because I hate your sacrifices. You kill, you belittle, you mistreat each other, then you come to worship. I don't need. That's what Jesus is saying. Leave your offering there in front of the altar. Go find your brother. People say, but you see Jesus saying, there you remember. Who makes us to remember, by the way? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, don't wait all day. This is the evil. They will come fast to me. They have to come. That's a mistake that Christians make. The Holy Spirit is telling you, go to them and say, no, they have sinned against me. They have to come. And the Spirit says, my son, my daughter, you have no peace. Go to them. No, they did this, the evil. They have to come. No, Jesus is saying, there you remember. Who makes you remember? Friends, let's be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Again, the pastor was obedient last night. He called me. Some of you are going to crucify him because this preacher preached too long and so forth. <laughs> but I want to tell you, if the Spirit is telling you about your brother, your sister, don't ignore it. It is him, it is the Holy Spirit who reminds us our brokenness. Maybe there's brokenness in your family, in your relationship, I don't know with who. Please, take the courage. Give up your right to be right. Give up the anger and the bitterness and the shame. Take the courage because he's saying, there you remember. Some of you are remembering now because the Holy Spirit is speaking in your heart. Reconciliation and forgiveness, they go together. My prayer is that we Christians, first our identity in Christ, will supersede anything else we can identify with. And out of identity, we will do even things that are not possible. Because the Spirit will guide us. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.